Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Here are your hosts, Barry Schuster and Chris Tripoli. Okay, welcome everybody to the Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli. And I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. And we want to welcome you to another session of the Corner Booth. This session, we're featuring a special guest. We've got Matthew Mitchell, the owner-operator of Traveler's Table, a full-service very interesting, upper casual, successful restaurant, which was his first venture, actually, based in Houston, Texas. Matthew, welcome to the Corner Booth. Thank you very much, Chris. Happy to be here. Maybe we could get started, Matthew, if you wouldn't mind telling the listeners a little bit about you and and your road to hospitality, because unlike some, yours might be a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to do so, Chris. I uh, I come from a, a, a pretty mixed background. I, I did grow up here in Houston. I uh, started university in uh, Atlanta at Emory uh, and then won a scholarship to Oxford in England. Uh, so I was largely educated in Europe. So stayed at Oxford, studied in France and Italy, and then was a journalist and a writer for quite a few years, really got to travel extensively. And it was kind of always food that I, food and drink where I felt like I kind of understood these other cultures, or at least it was my window into these other cultures. And I think you know, even back then, I somehow I wanted to connect food and travel. And, you know, it was a great lifestyle in my 20s. I was living in London, living in Paris and New York. I realized how little journalists make and how expensive those cities were. And so, um, you know, we all have forks in the road along, along the way. And was fortunate that I also had a business degree uh, in addition to literature. And um, my father was a physician here in town uh, and in the pharmaceutical industry, so kind of lured me back. He wanted to start a medical research company, and so he said, you kind of run front of house and I'll run the back of house, meaning he was going to, you know, make sure all the science and and the medical was uh, done properly. And I was going to handle all the employees and getting the contracts and all that. So we actually ran that for 15 years. Uh, We did uh, clinical studies for pharmaceutical companies, diabetes, hypertension, cholesterol, we're actually the, uh, one of the largest vaccine research clinics in the country. So not the best business to get out of and get into the hospitality industry right before COVID. But, you know, it was something that we felt good about doing or I did. I just never felt like this was my passion. This is what I was meant, you know, meant to do in my life. And uh, quite honestly, I always felt a little bit more like my father's gig than mine. But towards the end of it, I was the CEO during the day and, and went to culinary school at night. Not that I necessarily planned on being the executive chef in, in my own restaurant, but um, did want to, again, create something where I was connecting food and travel and felt like I needed to have, you know, studied and, and understood food better so I could at least have a strong say in what went on the menu. So towards the end of it, after I graduated culinary school, we were able to sell the company and, you know, obviously acquire enough funds to launch a restaurant. So through that process, I went and worked at a number of restaurants in town. Uh, I was a line cook at Benji's. Uh, they own local food, so I went there. And then I was at North Italia for a little bit, playing different roles in each place. Just because I felt like I kind of need to, I paid some dues in the industry. I think it's hard to manage positions you haven't done yourself. You know, if you don't know what it's like to get, you know, uh, get in the weeds as a line cook and, you know, you pull the tickets and it's like that whole accordion of the tickets. And, you know, there's no point in, getting upset and throwing things, all you got, you just have to dig your way out and just put your head down and go. Same thing for being a bartender or a server. If you don't know what it's like to pocket order and you look over at that table and you realize that you uh, forgot to put the order in, you have to run to the kitchen and call for 911, then it's hard to, it's hard to manage those positions in the future. So. So Matthew, you were in operations and management for a company involved in the pharmaceutical industry. And a little bit about the clinical trial business. It's pretty complex. So you had some serious business experience. You understood complex regulations, not lightweight stuff, and a business degree. So coming into the restaurant business, was there anything that really surprised you, took you off guard? You know, in spite of the fact that, you know, you had a a pretty serious business background, what what didn't you expect? (laughs) That's a great question, Barry. 
Um, you know, obviously everybody sweats the staffing and, and managing, you know, the, let's just say that the restaurant industry is not the most, uh, things aren't done in the most traditional way. You know, if you've, you've been in corporate America, people coming in hungover and people uh, drinking on the job and things aren't things that you normally have to deal with at a medical research company. So, you know, certainly some of those issues, the employee uh, issues and, and, you know, I, you know, coming from a, a fairly serious profession, you know, I, I wasn't used to, we probably have only 40% of the, the interviews that I set up. Do they actually even bother to show up even once you've confirmed in my text message? So, you know, just things like that, just the, I don't know, uh, a little bit of irresponsible, you know, attitude. And, and I, you know, I, I wish, and one of the things we're really trying to do is bring a, maybe a higher level of professionalism to the industry, because some of the things I think historically been tolerated, uh, whether it be toxic kitchens or, you know, sexual harassment and things, I just think those things need to, to go away. And, um, you know, we're in, at least in our own establishment, trying to make headway towards that just because, uh, there's no reason some of those things are still, uh, you know, being tolerated. Interesting. And you're not the first uh, operator who came into the business who pointed out the people side of it being the uh, the real big challenge. I'm, I imagine that the finance operations, you know, the the nuts and bolts of running a business. I'd imagine you probably, you know, got to speed pretty quickly, even though you have a different business model. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, you know, the. the Definitely came from a, a business with a lot, lot higher margins. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and so, um, you know, moving to one where, you know, a well-run restaurants 10 to 10 to 12% profit, um, you know, that doesn't leave a lot of error for uh, or a lot of room for not managing things tightly. And so, mm-hmm. you know, where we, we opened October, 2019, four or five months before the world fell apart. Um, and, you know, certainly now we're we're in a good position where we're moving beyond sort of the startup phase into a mature, you know, well-run restaurant phase. But um, I think I think there was definitely more sweat equity that went into it than I was necessarily originally anticipating. I thought, you know, it was just pick the right team. It was going to be a little bit more plug and play than it turned out to be. But that's also why I, I did some of the things I did along the way, whereas I, I could step into roles and I could hands-on when necessary. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. I think the listeners might like to know more about that process. What what you did along the way that went from, you know, uh, your experiences to the that then developed into your idea. Yeah. Uh, the initial idea and the conceptual process. How long did that take? What were the curveballs? Um, um, what what was it? And and uh, and then what you opened. Uh, how close to that was it to the initial conceptual thought? Yeah. So, you know, I would say our, our restaurant is a, a bit high concept. And what I mean by that, you know, it's a term in the film industry. Um, it, you know, what I mean by that is it's a fairly complex thing we're trying to achieve. We're deliberately trying to link food to travel. Our theme is to, if you want to call it a theme, is to explore the world through food and drink. And so we're, you know, again, we're called Traveler's Table because we're, you know, identifying or finding uh, traditional dishes from around the world, uh, dr- dishes and drinks, and then in most cases, modernizing or elevating them. So we're trying to make them lighter, brighter, better plated, better garnished, and usually better protein or better ingredients. Um, you know, I was teased uh, by a number of chefs along the way that I may have been the stupidest uh, restaurant entre- <laughs> entrepreneur ever in that I literally was trying to open seven restaurants in one, you know, someone who's going to try to cook Asian cuisine, right? Indian cuisine, right? Middle Eastern cuisine, European, Latin American, all these things. But, you know, I, I was a firm believer that the challenge was the opportunity. And what I meant by that was that if we could, if we could uh, cook all these cuisines well, and if we got the ambiance right, this kind of upscale bohemian vibe, that it would be unique and it would be something that people would gravitate to. Um, you know, I don't know how if I wanted to do an, uh, you know, an Italian restaurant or French or you know, any single cuisine, how I would have made that unique. You know, I don't know how you brand something where, you know, our industry, there's, there's really no barriers to entry except, except your brand. And so if your brand isn't 
pretty unique, then what's to stop someone from opening up an Italian restaurant across the street or Mexican restaurant, whatever it is to compete with you. So, you know, I was intent on making it unique enough and, you know, tying a lot to travel and exploring the world and all this. Uh, And again, I felt like if we could get it right, then it was gonna, you know, have legs. And if we didn't get it right, then it was gonna come across as like Rainforest Cafe or something. So uh, that was uh, a big part of it. And that's interesting, Matthew. that is a huge challenge to try to bring all those cuisines together, not only from the inventory and the, and the cooking, which we can talk about because that's, you, you seem to be mastered that. But when somebody comes in there, getting a good sense, where am I? What is this place? What is the concept? And I, I, I've got to believe, um, correct me if I'm wrong, there had to be something that just tied it together conceptually. So when you went in there, even though the menu was varied, you had a sense of the place. Does that make sense? Sure. Uh, I mean, yeah. So, you know, we, we say we do curated global cuisine. And what we mean by that is that we're deliberately picking these dishes. Um, you know, again, from around the world, you obviously can't span the globe. We don't currently have something from sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but, you know, again, there's a lot of, um, you know, even the, even the decor is meant to suggest you know, a global uh, experience. We almost want to feel like some, a place where you would visit in a, a capital in Europe or in you know Latin America. So it doesn't necessarily feel like you know another Houston restaurant. You know, maybe that was even um, fortuitous as far as you know it was a chance to travel, especially in this past year of no one getting to travel. Uh, you know, at least they could kind of travel a little bit through the through our food and drink. So. Um, yeah, you know, that, that was, I think, the core of it. I had traveled so extensively and, and food, you know, my wife uh, and I, I think where we're going to eat is probably 90, 95% of our decision making when we're uh, taking trips, uh, you know, going what the museums and things are almost secondary to where we're going to eat that, that you know, during the trip. So, um, yeah, I think that was the core of it was, was that um, desire to get our guests. And so our, so our menu is deliberately meant to I, I say it spans from foreign to familiar. So, you know, 25% of the dishes are, you know, more safe, I guess I would say safe. My mother, my mother is not an adventurous eater, you know, a white woman from the South. So, you know, the, the shrimp and grits or the, um, you know, the, the scallops or, you know, seafood risotto would be the thing she would gravitate to. And then probably 50% of the menu is a little bit further afield kind of um, elevated versions of the greatest hits. You know, we have a soft shell crab pad thai, uh, and things like that. And then the last 25% is really meant to be for our more adventurous eaters, you know, things like Vietnamese jaca, which is like a Vietnamese fish dish that's, you know, fairly unique or Thai cow soy, so dishes that people may not be familiar with. And how did you, how does that impact the daily operations? Um, can you walk us through the structure, your role, um, sure. wife's role? How did you have to structure food, beverage management in order to make this work? Yeah. So, you know, certainly one of the challenges is with such a diverse menu was that, uh, you know, there's very little cross utilization, Um, you know, sauce is unique to, you know, the spice blend that they use in Indian cuisine, the spice blends that they use in Indian cuisine are quite different than the ones they might use in Moroccan cuisine and Latin cuisine and all that. So, you know, unfortunately, as opposed to maybe an Italian restaurant where they're putting sugo or, or marinara on almost everything, there's not right. a lot of cross-utilization that. So that's obviously a challenge to the kitchen. And also just a challenge to having chefs that are good enough to be able to, and, and versatile enough um, to cook these different types of cuisine. And so, you know, a big part of the creative process was me, uh, for the most part, being the one who kind of said, okay, this is the, these are the dishes I'm interested in putting on the menu and then having working with the chefs or for that matter, the bartenders and saying, how do, how do we make this work? Or how do we make this, how do we make a pad thai that's the traveler's table, that version of pad thai? Um, and so, you know, and I don't pretend that any one individual is the master that, you know, creates everything. It certainly doesn't hinge all on one chef. We've had a, a number of talented chefs along the way. Some that have helped us with the Asian dishes, some that have helped us with the Latin dishes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think as a team, we, we were able to pull together and everybody makes, you know, a strong contribution. Uh, my role really is kind of be the navigator, um, or the, 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 I guess 
drive the concept forward. Um, there's definitely been a lot more stepping into the trenches than I ever anticipated. Um, we actually um, did not continue with our original executive chef and sous chef um, basically on opening night. Uh, it was just things weren't working out. Uh, and so I was, I had to run expo for the first nine months of, of us being in business. And I um, didn't have a day off for nine months. Uh, but, you know, that's also why I went to culinary school and why I cooked in some of the kitchens I went in. And then, uh, you know, we're all about getting better every day. And um, so as a, as a, you know, restaurateur, I feel like I'll, I'll put myself, if we're not happy with the direction we're going on any individual position, then I'm going to step into that role. Um, and so similarly, we've done that uh, a couple of times now as general manager. I, I was the general manager for the last, uh, for three, you know, for three months at one point. So, um, you know, we just want to get better every day. And, um, and I want people who are committed to that path. Um, you know, eventually the goal is obviously to get us to a point where um, this location is very stable and thing, the train, I like to say, we want to feel like a independent chef driven restaurant but the trains need to run on time. And uh, once we get there, then, you know, we're going to look at uh, other, uh, other uh, locations because I, you know, the goal was to open up other locations, uh, but you know, it, it hasn't been the most normal year. So uh, we're uh, just kind of coming out of this uh, crazy period that the whole world's been in. You attracted some, some pretty um, impressive uh, attention uh, in the media and so forth. Um, how that, how did that evolve, uh, so quickly? What, what, what went on? And, uh, one of the things that in the back of my mind is, you know, you'll see, uh, you'll see restaurants and they have just really a big PR push. And a lot of, a lot of the press they get is because they hire good PR people. Uh, some is just because it's amazing. What, what got you that visibility that everybody would love to have? So I think it was a couple of factors. One is um, having come from a creative background, writing and journalism, I knew that a big part of this was I wanted the restaurant to have a story, you know, for people to be able to tell, you know, journalists, you know, what are you going to write about another barbecue place or another Italian place? I mean, you know, you need to make the work easier for them. So I do think we had a unique story to tell. Um, now, of course, early on, some of them questioned whether or not we were going to be able to pull it off. And I get that. That's, you know, all I asked was that they came and gave us a try. Um, but if you, you know, sort of give them ammunition and so a new story to tell, then, then it makes their, their job easier. Um, and then I think, you know, we do have a very, um, an exceptional PR team. I'm, my team, it's, a, it's uh, you know, a small agency that does uh, the Stevens Group, and they've done a phenomenal job for us. But, you know, a big part of my uh, contribution is to give them things to make it easy for them. Um, so, you know, the branding and the, the concept and being able to tie this to travel and, and uh, you know, obviously the food, the food's beautiful, then it sells itself to some degree. So, you know, it's, uh, I, I do think there's a misconception sometimes about the role of PR. You know, PR's job's really difficult if you don't give them stuff, good ammunition to work with. If you give them good ammunition and a good story uh, and something compelling, um, then, you know, a good PR team like the Stevens Group can can do great things for you. But they can't, you know, uh, they're not alchemists. They can't turn uh, lead to gold. Uh, so, if, uh, so if you don't have something to, that they can really tell, you know, one of our big things is, uh, and I think, Chris, so, you know, you and I know each other from uh, back when we were uh, working together uh, with your consulting firm, um, you know, one of the things you guys always talked about was eliminating the veto vote. You know, the veto vote is, you know, when you go out to dinner, um, not everybody can agree on Mexican or Italian or French or whatever. And so that's one of the things that was kind of a, a core to our, you know, core piece of our concept was, you know, these dishes from around the world, you know, in theory, yeah, and that's one of the things that's great is we got lots of larger groups because our, our menu is meant to be shareable and you know let's try flavors from all over and nobody can say i don't want french tonight or i don't want mexican tonight so um you know so all these things kind of tie together well i think you made <laughs> certainly a lot of people in marketing and advertising happy uh with that comment you can tell that you know you're a knowledgeable person with journalism background most operators that i talk to uh 
when things aren't running smoothly or business isn't as busy, um, forget the fact that they need to create something to be told. Um, we skip that step and go immediately to the marketing people and say, you're not making enough noise for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good for you. So you, you got up and running, things are going well. And then like everybody else, you hit that wall with the pandemic. Um, so then, then what? Um, can you kind of walk us through <clears throat> over overused term pivot, but your adaptation to this new environment and uh, tell us, you know, how that went and what carried you through it and give us a pleasure talking to you today. Yeah. Um, you know, so I'm, I think the most successful entrepreneurs are just glass half full kind of people. Otherwise you don't put push all your chips or a lot of your chips into the middle of the table and, and uh, roll the dice. Um, you know, you obviously have to have a lot of self-confidence to just believe at your core that you're going to make it work, uh, even knowing the failure rates in the restaurant industry. Um, you know, certainly COVID uh, made things hard for the whole world. So I, I and I, I'm also just not someone who believes in feeling sorry for ourselves. So certainly hospitality got hit harder than a lot of industries. Uh, it was a very face-to-face -face industry um, that had a lot of challenges to it. Um, you know, there were actually some good things that came out of it. I mean, obviously there was a lot of negative, negative things. Um, it gave us the opportunity to, to, to tighten the belt. Um, you know, one of the things I, I always reference, and again, it's nice to have perspective from other industries, whether it be medical or journalism, or just these other life experiences is that, you know, most of the most successful enduring American companies and, you know, the, the companies that we think of as iconic American brands, GE and Hilton, they were all founded during the Great Depression or times of severe um, recession, and and I think that's really because you know if you can, if you're adaptable enough and you learn to le run lean, you can always loosen that belt later. And now that's what we're doing. We're now we're able to sort of loosen the belt. Um, it's really hard for for companies, restaurants that that get founded in times of bounty to ever tighten that belt. So, you know, we think about the crashes or the, you know, dot-com crash and, and things like that. You know, those people, you know, once you put on that weight, you can't sink, you know, you can't cinch that belt back down to a 32 waist. And so you, we were, you know, our opening menu would have 43 items on it. Um, we were throwing a lot of stuff away every night. Our costs were out of control. Our labor was out of control. Um, and so, you know, COVID, forced us. I mean, we had no option where you know, we were going to go to business if we weren't able to get our arms around that. And so, you know, now the menu has about 30 items on it. Um, and I don't think that the experience has suffered for it. We just had to be more deliberate. And now we rotate the menu more often. Um, but keeping the ingredients for 43 things in house on a nightly basis just wasn't sustainable. And so sometimes uh, tough times call for, you know, desperate measures. And, and um, you know, I think the, the restaurants that have survived this have been the ones that both been most, most adapt, adaptable. Um, I'll actually, my favorite quote for this year has been one from Charles Darwin. And it's that it's actually, you know, everybody thinks about survival, uh, strong, uh, survival of the fittest and the strongest survive. That's actually not what he said. His quote is that it is not the strongest who survive it is the ones who are the most adaptable. Exactly. The most adaptable to change. Um, he said, it's not the strongest and it's not the most intelligent. It's, it's the ones that are most adaptable to change. And so, you know, not only cutting back the menu, obviously we had to massively downscale and, and you know, we had layoffs and all that, just like the rest of the industry. And then doing things to um, still keep, you know, as a shrinking pile, a shrinking um, number of guests going out. Uh, certainly the older guests, you know, would, just locked in as they, as they should have, you know, for obvious reasons. Uh, so it was a shrinking pie of people going out and, and we had to focus on still trying to get as much of our size as we could. So we tried to be innovative when we had to shut down in March. Uh, we worked really hard, launched a brunch menu because uh, we wanted to keep introducing new things to keep the attention on us. Launched a brunch menu and then, um, and then shortly thereafter, we started doing oyster night on uh, on Wednesday nights. So we do oysters five different ways. 
and then uh, started doing steak night on Thursday nights. So we're doing steak four different ways. And that's kind of one of our themes is to take something like, you know, oysters or steak and show how they do it around the world. So we were able to keep getting, introducing new things to the media for them to keep talking about us. And, you know, it kind of helped us weather the storm. So what I'm hearing there is the adaption started with, you know, we have to manage product for smaller volume, smart move, limited menu, got it. But what we hadn't seen a lot of other people successfully do is during this downturn, um, actually broadened their market. So you broadened your market by rolling out brunch and having a, a new weekend market segment attraction. And then you were talking about some specific nightly promotions, uh, uh, specific promotions, broaden the market, even though we had a more limited regular menu. So what was the result? Were you satisfied with the revenue you handled? Um, yeah, so it's a great question, Chris. So a couple of things. So there's a lot of soul searching, obviously, that goes on when your revenue plummets by 75% or whatever it did there at a point. Um, and it's really some gut-wrenching decisions about we chose to continue. You know, a lot of people, uh, first thing you do is cut the PR budget. We didn't do that. We felt like we need to keep, you know, that was actually when we felt like we needed to get more attention. Um, you know, I want to give a huge shout out to uh, the Houston Restaurant Weeks. It, it could not have come for a better time for us this year, um, August and September. Um, things were really struggling. Katie Stone and, uh, and, and their team did a fantastic job rolling that out. Um, they also cut the amount of money that the restaurants had to contribute this year. It was only a dollar per menu. Um, and so we were, we were also in a, a, a fortunate, it was great timing for us. And it was also, we were in a fortunate place in that we were still new enough that a lot of restaurants or a lot of guests had not tried us for the first time. Um, it was a little bit um, surprising that literally we went from, so, so restaurant week started on August 1st this year. It happened to be a Saturday. So to give you some sense for, so Friday night we had 50 guests. Saturday night we had 200. And it was a little disturbing, almost disturbing to us that, you know, all it took was a $45 prefix to get all these people who had not been going out to suddenly start going out again. Wow. Um, almost kind of hurt. <laughs> I was kind of like, um, almost question humanity a little bit there that it, it just took a deal to get everybody, um, you know, to face COVID again. Um, but we are, we have a fairly large restaurant, um, certainly for our level of cuisine. So we were able to still space the restaurant. Well, um, our, we serve upscale cuisine, but we we're deliberately at a moderate price point. Our dinner, uh, check average is $50. And then of course it's a lot lower, um, for brunch, uh, so for brunch and for uh, during restaurant week. And so restaurant week just was fantastic for us. It was actually hard to scale up that quickly, but you know, we were, I think a lot of the more expensive restaurants really struggle. I said 45, it was actually 35. Uh, we did the $35 menu. So it was, we were able to put together a pretty compelling um, menu and not lose money on it. You know, a lot of the more expensive restaurants, I think really struggle to put together a good menu at a really low price point. So. You know, combination of being large enough and, and still be able to space and handle all the COVID protocols, being new enough, and then also being at a moderately moderate price point. You know, Houston Restaurant Week really uh, kept us afloat. It's good to have those have that same type of promotion. So it's and it's good that they do. Yeah, a lot of operators, as you know, um, had to generate or or increase their takeout and delivery. Um, traffic and frankly um, you have a sophisticated menu you're not wings you're not pizza um, did you go in that direction and, and and how do you make some of these things these you know complex pad thai dishes with you know really interesting ingredients travel well if you actually went down that road yeah, so we we definitely had to use the word pivot, um, you know, especially when obvious operations were shut down for dining, uh, eating. Um, you know, at our price point, which again is moderate, but it's not pizza or wings, as you said. Um, you know, it's it's difficult to garner too much takeout. Now, 
granted during COVID there were people ordering full meals and things. Um, so we, we literally had no takeout program to speak of because we, you know, we we're just struggling to keep up with demand when we first opened. So we definitely, you know, started focusing on that. It was me, uh, two managers and the two two chefs or three chefs at that time. Um, you know, we were the only employees. Uh, so we were making it happen every night uh, as far as takeout. So we definitely pivoted. Um, that's never going to be a huge part of our business. Just, be, you know, I don't know how many people want Branzino or seafood risotto to, to go once they can start returning to restaurants. But it certainly uh, helped plug some holes in the dam uh, and kept us afloat until, you know, people started returning, uh, returning more. And then, not, you know, same thing with TABC uh, releasing some of the restrictions so we could sell alcohol to go. And then they pivoted even further and allowed us to start prepackaging the cocktails on, you know, making a cocktail and putting it in. So they, all that helped. Um, you know, for us, it wasn't a huge Suddenly, you know, everything was, it was great again, but it, it helped, it helped to some degree. Yes, you are in a market as, as I know, um, many others were able to do where they allowed specialty cocktails and liquor to be sold. Um, and I think that, uh, that's a good thing to bring up. Um, uh, do you see this as a trend? Um, kind of a two-part question. Do you see that as a trend you might still continue, uh, even though, you know, you're now, uh, kind of pivoting back to more regular uh, inside dining. And then secondly, with the uniqueness of your menu and worldly presentation, um, how does liquor play a role? Are you doing a large percentage of liquor and, and how do the cocktails get developed to fit the different worldly items? Sure. Uh, good, good questions. Uh, so yes, we do uh, want to keep a focus on uh, takeout. Uh, Again, I don't know that that's ever going to be an enormous revenue generator for us, but we we want it to be a convenience uh, for our guests. Um, we will con continue to serve cocktails to go. Uh, I, it looks like those uh, that's going to be uh, extended as far as being allowed. Uh, but you know, again, a big part a big part of our concept is is the it, we are an experience driven restaurant, um, so we want people to come in. Um, the environment and the decor and all that ties into the travel and the, you know, sort of the bohemian um, global theme. So, um, you know, we'll be happy to do as much takeout as, as the, as the market uh, wants, but that will never be as big for us as, as the dine-in. Um, I think there's also a lot of ghost kitchens and things like that are, that are emerging, but, you know, it's just hard to get the full experience, you know, you know, Belgian mussels or not, you know, with, uh, with you know, moulet frites are never going to be as good uh, to go as they would be in house or, uh, you know, the oyster specials and things like that. So um, as far as uh, our cocktail program, I, it's something I'm extremely proud of. I, uh, because that was always a very strong part of the concept and what I wanted to create. And it actually turned out to be a huge boon to us during the pandemic, because what we found was that the younger people to some extent were still going out. Um, the older people, you know, as I said before, uh, wisely stayed home, but the, you know, there were a lot of younger people um, that continued to go out. And so what we found is the traveler's table became almost their all, all in one shop. You know, they would come even groups up to, you know, we, we weren't seating more than 10, but even groups were, um, they would come and instead of going to dinner and then bar hop, Traveler's Table was their one stop for the night. So they, I guess they, that was one way they were kind of reducing risk. And we have a very compelling, very cool, in my opinion, uh, humble opinion, um, you know, curated cocktail list where we do a plays on old fashions and we do plays on, you know, again, it's the kind of same thing where we take a traditional drink in this case uh, and then modernize it or or uh, elevate it. So we, you know, have an Indian mango mule with, with garam masala and things like that, Japanese uh, style old fashioned. So, you know, they're, they're still true to the spirit. I like to say that our dishes are still true to the spirit of the dish. They're just not the traditional presentation or the traditional uh, preparation. Same goes for our cocktails. And so um, it's 35% of our uh, revenue, our, our, our bar. Very good. 
And now that, you know, one of the good things is now that uh, some of our, you know, more mature guests are coming back now, our wine sales are starting to take off a little bit more. Our wine sales were not, not very high when it was mainly uh, our younger guests. And I'm, I'm assuming you're bringing in wines and beers from uh, different parts of the world to compare with the, uh, uh, the yes. menu items, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and again, you know, our, we, we try to keep our menu pr uh, price point uh, moderate because I would rather have good guests come back on a regular basis rather than, you know, you're kind of credit card smoking when you're leaving the restaurant. And you're like, well, I won't be back for six months. Uh, we have a lot of guests that come, you know, Wednesday night for oysters and then you know come back for dinner on Saturday night and then they're in there for Sunday brunch. So, you know, I, I'd rather see people more often and serve a wider uh, swath of humanity rather than just uh, sort of the wealthier clientele that some restaurants cater to. You can't read about the restaurant business right now without having to read about the labor issues, um, restaurants struggling to find people, keep people. Um, you know, what's going on for you and your market? Uh, have you discovered the wormhole in the space-time continuum that we can share with our listeners that uh, will solve this problem? Uh, what's going on? Uh, it is it is challenging. Um, it's, I guess there's two kind of two, two factors essentially. So one is, uh, as you alluded to, we're getting a lot of good press. Uh, we just filmed a television show that I'm not going to go into, but people can pull up which one. Uh, so there's a very good feel good, you know, uh, atmosphere, uh, you know, the front of house are all making a lot of money right now, just because, you know, the public's coming back out. Um, people are excited to be out. You know, as long as we can provide good service, they're getting rewarded for their their service. Um, you know, so a lot of the front of house retention and hiring driven by where they think they can make money. Um, and but both front and back of house, a lot also comes from, you know, and this is something I'm very passionate about. My wife's incredibly passionate about my wife's uh, a regional HR manager for uh, a major hospitality company. Um, and you know if and it's about creating the right culture and you know we were very passionate about being a place where people want to come to work where people feel like they're treated well and with respect that the kitchen is a learning kitchen it's not one where people feel like they get beat up um, there's no you know there's a zero tolerance for any kind of harassment so if you know people feel you know this is straight out of danny myers you know philosophy that if you know, treat you treat your people well then they're going to treat the guest well, the guests are going to come back and treat the, your team well. So it's just a very uh, self, you know, self-fulfilling, um, you know, a cycle. And so, you know, that also helps. Um, we've, there's some, you know, obviously restaurants in the, in the industry that don't have good reputations and, you know, we've get a lot of resumes from those places. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of a combination of having good buzz, uh, treating your people well, paying them well, uh, and rewarding, uh, you know, it's, I feel like I'm as accountable to them as they are to me. Well, that's, that is, that's a wonderful point to hear. And, um, and, and especially for, you know, a newer, you know, concept to come in um, with the level that quite frankly takes uh, some organizations years to realize and develop that uh, reputation good of course um, compensation attracts people of course but people stay only where they feel well connected where they're involved and where they're appreciated so that helps you obviously retain staff a little more um, can you go go back to that point of a learning kitchen um, uh, how do your how does your kitchen stations work how are you better now with your more limited menu to actually function and has that positively impacted what you said earlier was a issue of yours the concept was a good concept was well received but you had high cost because of poor uh cross utilization how's that been affected yeah, now? so i guess a couple things so one is you know i need to i need to give you know enormous props to our executive chef stanton bundy he's really done a fantastic job of coming in and, and having the right attitude and um, having the culinary uh, adaptability to cook these different cuisines. You know, obviously no one's versed in all these cuisines, but 
you know, I think being a really great chef isn't necessarily all the recipes you have in your pocket. It's really, can I adapt to say, I, you know, I don't know a ton about, let's just say Moroccan cuisine, but can I, you know, do I have a good sense of, you know, flavors and spices and, and, uh, and seasoning and, and then, and then, you know, work on these dishes to make them better. And so a lot of it's kind of incremental improvement, you know, let's tweak this dish to make it a little bit better. Um, and, and being humble enough to admit that this dish may need to be a little bit better. Um, and then also, uh, you know, when you, when you do stabilize the team, then costs do come into alignment because you're not constantly training people and losing people and having put three people on because you know one person's not gonna show up every night. Um, you know, obviously just sourcing, if you have 30 dishes instead of 43, there's just less things to keep your hands on. And then being very deliberate about studying your P-mixes and making sure that you're rotating out, you know, the, the ones that aren't selling and or the ones that even if you love them uh, being disciplined enough to say, you know, that's a 36% food cost. Do we really want to keep that? Um, so, you know, it, it, all of it takes discipline. And, um, and but, it, it, you know, if you are deliberate about it and, and you're focused on it, um, and then talking about being a learning kitchen, you know, if you're support, if the guys feel supported and you're listening to them and not just beating on them and it's not an environment where you feel like you could drop an egg that you're going to get, you know, fired. Um, and then ultimately rewarding the, the, the guys and, and women that have been with you and, and you have a bond of, um, you know, we're going to rely on you and you can rely on us. And we had to take care of some people during the pandemic um, and, and, Figure out ways to help keep them afloat, so they uh, you know return the favor. What's your um, perspective toward growth? Uh, you know, some operators, you know, have a, a very um, well planned out growth strategy, and a lot of operators, younger operators like yourself, are saying, "Well, you know, I'm going to grow as the concept tells me to grow." Um, when it's right time to go here or there. What's your plan? Good question, Barry. Um, so there's, we have a lot of opportunities in front of us, which is a good position to be in. I think part of it was that we did as best as we as best we could, you know, to sort of navigate the pandemic. We were able to keep, you know, a certain visibility. And so things I, Mar between March and April, we had a 50% 50, 50 increase in business uh, and it's gone up more even from there. So uh, now with the TV show coming out, knowing we're getting, getting more exposure, um, I, I'm a big believer in stabilizing what we have to make sure, you know, I think you can almost be too aggressive. Um, and so we certainly want all that. We also have a fantastic general manager now, uh, David Jones. Um, so. We feel like we're getting the right team in place. We want to keep building that team a little bit because you know, we do have more demand than we did before. Um, the goal was always to uh, expand Traveler's Table, um, open up you know maybe two or three locations in multiple cities. Um, that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm, I've been very strict at not letting the price point get too high is it's it's hard to expand if if, you, if your price point gets beyond a certain level unless maybe you're a steakhouse or or a seafood chain like Pulux or something um but to still keep each location feeling independent and chef driven and i almost want them to feel like they didn't know there was another uh another location they they almost each one feels like a one-off independent restaurant um, we have some other opportunities to do uh, a smaller footprint, sort of more uh, fast, cat, not quite fast casual, but upscale casual, uh, other location, other concept. So right now where it's kind of like evaluating which way we want to do, it's more important for us to kind of make sure we meet the demand uh, that we have right now, but there's going to be some growth in the next year or so. Um, unfortunately, kind of as Chris knows well, you kind of have to be looking uh, you know, farther into the future and you know, things are going a little crazy here, but you need to already be looking at leases and things. You know, the nice thing is that success uh, breeds more success. So 
those landlords that weren't taking our calls the first time around and hiring development suddenly are putting together packages to lure us in. So, uh, you know, there were a couple, a couple in Houston that I, I was a little salty about the first go around that are suddenly, uh, you know, calling me uh, instead of vice versa. So that's, that's nice. gotta be a good feeling. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't blame them necessarily, but it, yeah. it was a little frustrating uh, when we first looked, uh, we're looking for locations. Well, you've made some very wise points. I mean, yes, it is very important to keep one eye on where you think your brand can go. That's very good. I also want to compliment you on the fact that you're keeping the other eye on people first. Uh, you know, you mentioned a couple of times when we talk about kitchen challenges and it's kudos to the people, how they work together and the leadership. When we talk about planning growth, the first thing you talk about is, you know, excellence and having uh, management. Um, and so I think that's something that listeners could maybe take note of that um, uh, the concepts that I've seen that, that seem to uh, succeed the best at expansion are the ones that always seem to lead from an operational point of view. Build the bench, have yeah. strong people, yeah. uh, then it makes expansion a little bit easier. Yeah, I mean, I will say that's one of the, you know, I, again, going back to being so glass half full, I, I try not to regret the, the road traveled, even if that road was a very rocky one. Um, you know, there were certainly mistakes made along the way. Um, I didn't know what the right executive chef looked like when we first opened. I didn't know what the right general manager looked like. And it took me a lot of pain stepping into those roles to learn what I needed. Um, so I don't regret that happening, even though it was very chaotic and traumatic. And fortunately, I think that for the most part, the guest and the public and the the critics didn't see all that uh, kind of behind the scenes. Uh, well, it's really more wear and tear on me. Um, but if I hadn't gone through those experiences and, and known, you know, and, and, and kind of suffered the consequences of not knowing what I needed, um, then I wouldn't now know what is the right fit. And so, um, you know, that, so I, I think that's one of the big things. Other, other thing I'll say that I'm just incredibly uh, insist upon or just most uh, I feel to my core is just making sure you do things the right way. Um, you know, I, I there's just, you know, I'll go back on this and I, I don't point fingers at different organizations and things, but there were definitely a lot of restaurants that were not playing right during COVID, you know, still packing houses and, and violating you know, uh, you know, the mandates, the CDC and things that put in and, and doing shady stuff. And, and I just, I, I just don't think that's the way our industry uh, is moving. I, and I, to me, it can't get there fast enough, um, you know, tolerating uh, people not treating each other right. Uh, you know, our industry needs to evolve or, you know, I'm not gonna say it, it's, it will die, but we will suffer consequences if if people, you know, that's one of the problems with the labor market right now is that a lot of people are just leaving the industry. You know, we all know that it's not the highest paying industry. We all know this long hours. We all know that. And so if, you know, if we can't kind of collectively get it together and make sure that we're trying our best to take care of people and each other, then, you know, it's, it's going to be a tough, um, tough road to, to go down. Well, we're all encouraged that there are more and more operators echoing your same sediments. Uh, and so that's what keeps me looking a little more optimistic towards the independent operator is that we are hearing now more and more people feeling um, the need for our industry to be uh, looked at as, as other very well-staffed, well-managed, well-compensated um, uh, professions. And, um, as it's looked at that way, then it will attract more and it'll breed on itself. At least that's what I'm hoping. Yeah, I mean, Chris, you know, one of the challenges and this is the balancing act we always try to you know, navigate is that, you know, no one wants a landscape where it's all big chain restaurants owned by, you know, Fortune 500 companies that, you know, uh, where it's, I mean, most of us got into this, this industry because we enjoy that it, it almost bridges the gap between, you know, a, a social atmosphere and, and a work atmosphere. And so, 
you know, that there's good things about that. It's, it's uh, kind of like why people love New Orleans, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's just a, a more, uh, your life and, and your work kind of uh, can be more intertwined. And so, you know, we don't want to completely lose that and become, you know, act like we're all, uh, you know, working for pharmaceutical <laughs> companies or something, but yet there does need to be some balancing act where it's some, you know, we do gravitate a little bit more towards things being done the right way and people, you know, eventually hopefully getting health insurance and, and uh, not suffering from, you know, alcoholism still pretty rampant in our industry and things like that. So it's, it's going to be, it's this balancing act where, you know, we want to still be a cool, fun place to, uh, in a cool, fun industry to be in where we're passionate about hospitality and serving people and cooking great food and making great drinks. But the, the trains run on time and people can count on, you know, their jobs and not being sexually harassed and those kind of things. So I think that's where we need to get to. Uh, I don't think you're going to find anything wrong with that sentiment. I think that's the direct approach to take. It's certainly the right approach to take. I think on that point, Barry, I think it's about time to wrap up. Yeah, um, this has been this is really great, Matthew. Um, you know, some of the things you've talked about, people first, culture, integrity. Um, you know, it's one thing from us to say, hey, this is this is the way to go. And then hear from somebody who's actually in the business, in the trenches, doing it every day and making it work. Um, it, it, it's, it's really a great message. I got to I got to thank you for that. Well, it also takes you guys, you know, with the podcast and restaurant owner and, you know, Chris's work when he was, uh, you know, fighting the good fight as a as owning, you know, running a consulting firm. You know, it, it takes all of us to provide leadership and also just get the word out um, about, you know, hopefully making some changes, um, but, you know, taking care of the, this industry that we all love. That's great. Well, thank you so much. And I mean, not just for taking the time today, not just for the pearls of wisdom that I think our listeners can certainly profit from, but for sticking to your guns, overcoming the odds, producing a concept that I know many people were betting against, uh, for putting together uh, a right approach right from the get-go. Uh, thanks so much for setting that direction, setting the right example. Uh, we wish you the best. Thanks, guys. Keep uh, helping us get the word out. I uh, certainly appreciate all the work you guys are doing as well. Thank you. We certainly thank Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine and everybody at restaurantowner.com, which in our opinion is certainly the best source of support and information for the independent operator on the web today. And for our listeners, stay tuned. We're going to be doing another Corner Booth real soon. Thank you for joining us on The Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.